Coming up on today's show, ketamine and psilocybin. They're showing great promise in the treatment of largely depression. We'll find out why. What will it take for Ukraine to win the war with Russia? We'll speak with a former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine. We'll talk about an ancient raptor skeleton. And we'll talk about the situation in the Rocky Mountains having a horrible time finding staff. Here on the show in the past, we have talked about the use of psilocybin, magic mushrooms, um, in treating anxiety and depression and things like that. And there's been a lot of work done around that and really, really encouraging and exciting advancements. And it's now being offered more, well, I'm not going to say broadly, more widely because it's still fairly restrictive, but it is happening more and more in this country because it's proven to show uh, really effective results. Well, now there's another quote-unquote party drug that's being explored in the same way. It's called ketamine, uh, special K, um, which, I, I, if, if I'm correct, I think is a, is a veterinary tranquilizer. We'll find out for sure. But um, it, it's also used in the party scene quite a bit, just like, you know, magic mushrooms and all the rest. But they're finding it also has some really, really powerful mental health benefits, too, and uh, some encouraging developments there. So to find out all about that, we're going to chat now with Dr. Roger McIntyre, who's a professor of psychiatry and pharmacology at the University of Toronto. Doctor, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your time. Shay, great to be with you this morning. Thanks for covering the topic. It's very, it's fascinating to me. It really and truly is. Now, when we talk about ketamine or special K, as it's known on the street, it's a veterinary tranquilizer, right? I mean, just tell us what it is. Well, that's actually not entirely true. It's actually an FDA-approved treatment as an anesthetic. It's on the World Health Organization's list of essential medicines. The preface usually says it's a horse tranquilizer yeah. party drug, and of course that. That certainly kind of contours the conversation. Um, it actually is on the World Health Organization's list of essential medicines. It's used for treating pain. It's used for anesthesia. And more recently, the FDA approved and Health Canada has approved a version of the molecule, ketamine, to treat depression. And it's very common for us in medicine, by the way, Shay, for us to, we call it repurpose. In other words, we yeah. take a medicine and we find it's helpful for one reason, we find it can help for something else. Like, for example, we know that aspirin can help thin your blood if you've had a stroke or heart attack. That's an important uh, low baby dose of aspirin. But we also use it for pain and other reasons. So that's very, very common. And ketamine is just yet one of many examples of repurposing meds. But what's different, Shay, is that this is a treatment that's been shown to be effective rapidly helping people suffering from agonizing depression. That's the thing, right? Like, you, I mean, I, lots of people who've been on SSRIs will know sometimes it can take weeks or months to sort of get to the dose where it's actually being therapeutic. It's very different with ketamine, right? It can happen sometimes within hours? Correct. We now are able to detect improvement in people's symptoms within hours of taking the treatment. We call it a rapid-acting antidepressant. Again, it's been approved by the government of Canada, a version of it has, and approved by the United States government, a version of ketamine, and many, many countries around the world. In fact, over 40 countries have now approved a version of ketamine for depression. Because depression, as you said, Shay, you know, it takes four to six weeks in many cases for SSRIs to be helpful. That is certainly not acceptable. The other part about ketamine, which is so promising for people living with uh, mental illness or have depression especially, is that in addition to working so rapidly, it also reduces thoughts of suicide very rapidly within one to two days. And I don't think I can make the point strong enough. We've got to find ways to better treat uh, suicide and prevent suicide. 
Depression is the condition most often associated with suicide. They can go together, but they're not the same thing. So ketamine seems to be helpful in both. And here in Canada and the United States, the government has also recognized this and has approved a version of ketamine to help alleviate some of the thoughts, some of the urges around suicidality in people with depression. So when we've talked about uh, psilocybin before, we, like I said, it, it's starting to happen in, in baby steps, I would say, where you can get it under these conditions from this practitioner or whatever the case may be. Is it the same sort of a situation with ketamine? Like you say, it's been approved and it's been recognized as a possible treatment. Can you go see you, for example, and get a prescription and off you go? Is it that simple? No, absolutely not. Ketamine has actually been in our field of medicine now for over 50 years, and it's used frequently in anesthesia used in pain, now in depression, and it is a drug that's been shown to be safe and effective for the indications we talked about, notably depression being our focus today. Your listenership should not be using psilocybin. There's no evidence that we would ever recommend psilocybin as a standard treatment in depression at a high dose or low dose, so-called microdose. Oh, really? So people should, no, absolutely should not be using it uh, because we are still in the works of developing a product. Now, this is a, uh, a, a drug that's been around for a long, long time. Psilocybin's been around since the 50s, but yeah. frankly, LSD back to the 30s. And um, these are drugs that are currently being tested. They're currently being tested. So just like, uh, you know, there's, there's something different about uh, uh, joining a junior hockey team versus joining the Edmonton Oilers right. or the Calgary Flames, those are two different teams. So ketamine is in the NHL. Use the metaphor uh, we've got psilocybin way back in the junior ranks. It should not be used by anybody until we, in fact, are able to ascertain its safety and its efficacy. Now, what we're doing at My Center in Toronto, we have special access from the Health Canada, from Government of Canada, to give it to select people under very select circumstances. Right. We're also doing a study, Canada's first ever study, uh, looking at repeat dose psilocybin in people with depression. This is our effort to establish or understand its safety and whether it can benefit. What I'm very concerned about is that there is a message, I think, getting out there that somehow it's proven safe and effective, et cetera, et cetera. That is categorically not true. It is a work in progress, but we might come on this call, say, a year from now, two yeah, years yeah. from now, and we, may, and we may say, hey, look, this thing has really shown to be safe and help people, and it's moved along with respect to regulatory purposes. But for now... I believe safety is most important, and I don't think people should be using psilocybin until we in the academic and research world are able to establish that it's safe and effective. And again, there are extenuating circumstances where we can get permission from the government to give it. You've been hearing about people who have end, you know, palliative care yeah, sure. and, and cancer. Like that. That, 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 that's a different scenario where people are suffering, they're at the end of life, or people are suffering from other conditions, and the government carefully makes an approval uh, on each and every case. But it's certainly not ready for, as I say, prime time at all until we're able to establish safety and efficacy. Well, and I guess in a, in a sense, the same message would apply to ketamine in, in terms of, okay, it's like you say, it's farther down the road, it's a well-recognized medication, everything's like that, but, but don't be doing it on your own. I mean, you don't go oh, and access it. You need to have that same you know, therapist involved, right? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. You know, look, this is such a key point you've just raised, and thanks for ra raising it. I've got 
people have approached me over the years and and they've wondered about taking ketamine and you know buying it from their friends yeah, and this yeah. kind of thing and so on. And I would strongly say no to that. Look, anything anything that can help you in medicine can possibly hurt you. Side effects are the case with everything. And ketamine is a medication that's safe and effective when used under appropriate medical supervision. But it should absolutely not be taken by people in a basement on their own without supervision, etc. So only in medical circles. And I think that's a really, really, really important point. Thanks for raising that. Um, when we talk about ketamine, are there addictive um, concerns around this? And is it a treatment that you, know, you would be using long-term and possibly developing an addiction? Well, you know, that, those are great questions. Um, there's no doubt about it that there is uh, a vulnerability that some people have to misusing or abusing. For example, we know in many jurisdictions around the world, Canada, the United States, elsewhere, we have a percentage of our population that are actually abusing ketamine. So therein, we are reminded that this is a medicine that also has an abuse liability. Now, abuse liability is a very different, what that means is it has that susceptibility. But your question is an excellent one. If people take it repeatedly, for example, to treat depression, will that actually serve as a gateway? Right. Will they then go on to abuse alcohol and drugs? Will this set the stage for maybe craving uh, uh, you know, other types of substances they never craved before? It's an excellent question, and the short answer is we have no data to indicate that's the case. That being said, we are keeping a very close eye on this. We've got different ways we monitor for this. We're watching out for that. And these are important aspects that we need absolutely to keep a close eye on. But you know what the enemy of the state is, Shay? Mm. Is depression. Yeah. Depression is a serious, debilitating, agonizing illness. It has uh, been the most common reason why young people around the world are suffering. Depression skyrocketed thanks to COVID-19, as well as the restrictions around what took place in the economic insecurity. And we need to absolutely do better at treating depression. Ketamine for now, where the rest of the ones go, has really helped many, many people. So that being said, we always approach it with a lot of careful caution, surveillance, and absolutely keeping a close eye on some of those aspects you raised. Absolutely, yeah. So it's a work in progress. Very, very interesting, Doctor. Thanks so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. So, I mean, yesterday we had a discussion about what's going on now that we're at the three-month mark of the Russian invasion in Ukraine and, uh, you know, the fact that it's still going on. And I think for a lot of people, the, the expectation was that Russia would roll right through and this wouldn't take long. I think that was certainly Russia's expectation. Um, but the resistance from Ukraine um, continues to this day. And now we're actually talking about ways that Ukraine might win this, which if you go back to the beginning, I don't think anybody was talking about. But lo and behold, that's where we are now. So um, and perhaps it could be even better than it is if different countries had acted differently at the beginning. Uh, delighted that we have a chance to chat now with former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine. John Herbst joins us. Uh, John, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us today. My pleasure. Are, are you surprised, I mean, that we're sitting here three months in saying, you know, this is what we have to do for Ukraine to win? I mean, it didn't seem like that was even a reasonable proposition. I'm not surprised that we're talking about Ukraine winning. 
Uh, my expectation all along was that Putin was stupid enough to launch a major new offensive, he would lose. But I did not think Ukraine would fight as well and as effectively as it has. Um, when we take a look at what Ukraine has done, obviously they're getting a tremendous amount of support from the West, but it took some time and there was some desperate pleas from the you know, the leadership in Ukraine saying, we need more, we need more, we need more. Could we be in a different position if, say, the U.S. and Canada and the U.K. had acted differently when this began? The West in general and the U.S. in particular has provided Ukraine essential aid, and without that aid, Ukraine's position would be far worse than it is. But it's also true that the West in general and the U.S. in particular have been slow and at times insufficiently strong, and that's true to this day, in providing Ukraine what it needs. What could we have done better? Did anybody do enough? Uh, I think the governments probably did as much as they could because they saw the danger more clearly than anyone, uh, were the governments in the Baltic states and in Poland, which understand, like saying from an existential point of view, of how dangerous Putin is. But we, we have not provided all the weapons Ukraine needs, even now. They're delaying things. They're still saying no to certain things, which we should have said yes two months ago. And if we had given Ukraine everything it needed um, back before the fighting actually began as a deterrence and as a defense of Ukraine, uh, I think the Russians would be on their backs. Right now, the Russians are not in a good position, but they're not on their backs. Can they end up there? I mean, you're saying you believe Ukraine can win. Uh, Does it require more from the West? And and what are you seeing as an outcome here? uh, When I say I think Ukraine will win, I mean that, A, Putin will fail in his biggest objective, which is to bring down, either bring down the Ukrainian government or to ensure the Ukrainian government that follows his orders. Yes. That's what he really wants. Um, and I think it's possible that this fighting could end with Ukraine, with Russia in control of somewhat more territory than it was before this major invasion began three months ago. But not enough to really control or cripple the country. So to me, that, that's my minimal um, definition of a Russian defeat and a Ukrainian victory. Okay. And in terms of what the West needs to do to ensure that happens, um, are we providing the kind of support or are we prolonging this with our hesitancy? For sure. It, It may well be that if our assistance doesn't go beyond what we have decided thus far. Yep. Um, that may be sufficient to ultimately have Ukraine win. But that will mean a longer war and more Ukrainian casualties. But if we provided the advanced weapons that Ukraine has been asking for and all gave them all to Ukraine now and set up a pipeline to continue giving them to Ukraine, the war would end faster, fewer lives lost, fewer, fewer Ukrainians being tortured, kidnapped, and whatnot mm-hmm. by the Russians. Yeah, exactly, yeah. John, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate the chat today. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. And by the way, um, the Canadian government's been even more hesitant than the U.S. government, which is really quite surprising, given the large Ukrainian-Canadian community. Yeah, I mean, what... In Ottawa could clearly do much better than it has. Uh, expand on that. Uh, t- tell us what you mean. What, what could they have done that they haven't done? Um, 
they should have been prodding the United States to do more. Um, I mean, previously, that's what the governments in Canada would do. But, um, you know, with this major invasion, they've been, they've been slower than Washington, which is really, really quite amazing. Um, Canada has weapons, too, that could have given even if the United States was not. Uh, I'm not singling out Canada, but you're a Canadian station. Yeah. So yeah. That, that's why I mentioned it. But they have not distinguished themselves. Let's put it that way. Interesting. What's, what, what is the hesitancy in the West? Obviously, is it, we've been told that they don't want to trigger a larger conflict. They don't want to trigger World War III, essentially. Is there more to it than that? Uh, I think there, there was a sense, including in Washington, that Russia was going to win this and win it quickly. And that, was a, that just shows how poorly informed they were on the situation in Ukraine. Because uh, I'm one of a bunch of former U.S. ambassadors to Ukraine and other experts on the country who knew that Ukraine was going to fight um, to the end yep. and, and effectively. And that for sure, therefore, Russia would not be able to achieve its big aims of toppling the government and installing a puppet regime or calling the government to heal. And that was clearly not evident in Washington, that, that understanding. And so that may partly explain the initial reluctance to provide the weapons, but then it just they just remain cautious. You keep hearing about we don't want to provoke Putin. Putin's committing war crimes on an industrial scale, and we're worrying about escalation that might annoy him. And it's truly shameful. It's truly shameful. And that's I mean that's that's it's, that tendency is even worse in Western Europe. But in Washington, well, again, on balance, they're doing solid stuff. Um, they should have been doing more, they should have been doing it sooner, and that pattern still continues. I, I'm keeping you a little longer than I ex- expected, John. I want to ask, though, how does that what happen? Do like, like? If, if you're, like you're saying, if the experts and the ambassadors and the people who know the country recognize that Ukraine is not going to roll over and this is going to be prolonged and Russia won't achieve their goals, how come we were all sitting here saying uh, the experts anticipate that there'll be a puppet regime installed in Ukraine, they'll take over Donbass, and it, it'll move very, very quickly? What, where was that disconnect? How did the leadership not know what you were telling them? Well, I'm out of government, so they don't need to listen to me. Um, why why they weren't picking up more from, from their folks on the ground in Ukraine, I don't know. But we know, we know that you know, people um, everywhere, including at the top of governments, operate on biases and presuppositions. Mm-hmm. And there was just this you know, big thought in their heads that, well, first, uh, in Washington, they, they, they felt all along that China was the big danger to the U.S., and somehow Russia was not such a danger, which was a, truly a misconception of what Russia was up to. And then there was concern, well, when it comes to Russia versus Ukraine, well, Russia clearly wins. Um, and that fed into their desire to focus on China. Right. And in, in the case of Washington, they had a fatuous objective with Russia from the very beginning. I'm talking about the Biden administration. It was to have a stable and predictable relationship with Moscow. And they used that phrase as recently as early January, even as they were saying Moscow was undoubtedly going to invade Ukraine. Now, how could you possibly think a sensible objective is to have a stable and predictable relationship with the regime, which was going to launch an unprovoked major invasion? And they've been conducting an unprovoked war for, at that point, um, almost eight years. Yeah, yeah. Uh, John, unfortunately, I'm out of time, but I, I can't thank you enough. Great insight. I really enjoyed it. You're welcome.
Dinosaur skeletons. I mean, we, you know we like to talk about dinosaurs here on the show. It's great stuff. There was a skeleton that was found in Montana back in uh, 2015 uh, that recently went for a whole lot of money at auction. It's a 10-foot-long skeleton of the creature we know as Jurassic Park's Velociraptors, which I came to find um, isn't actually the name of the dinosaur. It's made up by the author of Jurassic Park, I think. But anyway, it's awesome. May 12th, it sold for more than $12 million to an anonymous buyer. And that is what has some people upset. Uh, This is going to be an interesting discussion. We're going to chat with Dr. Jessica M. Theodore, who is a professor of biological sciences at the University of Calgary. Doctor, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us. No, thanks for asking. So, okay, first of all, help me understand this. The Velociraptor doesn't really exist outside of Jurassic Park. I mean, that's not really what the dinosaur was known as until the movie came along, or the book came along, right? So, it's a complicated um, thing. The book was based on uh, research that was done primarily on Deinonychus. That's true. Um, Velociraptor had a cooler-sounding name. And... Um, so they changed it for the movie. And so if you look at it, there is actually a genus called Velociraptor. Okay. But at the time the book was being written, there wasn't much known about it. Um, so it used that name. And so if you look at the at the size of the animal in the movie, um, it's actually way too big compared to Velociraptor, the yeah. size of, of the actual genus Velociraptor. Yeah, because this skeleton that we're talking about is like 10 feet long, right? Yeah, Deinonychus. And it's it's very well known um, in terms of, of the amount of research that's been done on it. There was a huge amount of work done on it by um, a professor at Yale named John Ostrom, who did a ton of work on Deinonychus, among other people. Gotcha. Um, and so a lot of the sort of dinosaur renaissance, the change in ideas about dinosaurs being much more active and more warm-blooded, came from work on animals like Deinonychus. Um, and so that's why it was kind of exciting and why it got picked up in Jurassic Park and then into the movie. Um, but yeah, they switched the name because it sounded cooler. It does. <laughs> <laughs> now, you're talking about the work that led to all these advancements in our understanding of dinosaurs, and this work is done primarily on fossils, correct? That's what yeah. sort of gives us the answers. Yeah, and we look at the specimens. And so part of the idea behind dinosaurs being more active, some of the evidence from that comes not from looking at the skeleton to look at the morphology, which you could do from a cast or a CT scan these days, but actually from cutting up the bones and looking at them under the microscope. Okay. And so the problem is that when the stuff gets sold, even if researchers can keep a cast or a CT scan, if something happens to that specimen, which has happened before, the Max Burke specimen of Archaeopteryx has been lost since the 90s, um, we can't check the work. We can't do it again. New techniques come up all the time, and if we can't look at the original material, we can't use them. So, for example, in recent years, we've been able to figure out the colors of dinosaur feathers, and the only way we can do that is by using scanning electron micrographs of the original material. Okay, so that was the question I had is like, at some point, haven't you exhausted all of the scientific information you can glean from one specimen and it's time to, you're done with it. But no, because there could be no, something that comes up next are year. really inventive. Yeah. And we keep coming up with new techniques. And if we can't try them against the original material, it's so just like yesterday or the day before a paper came out where they've done some new kind of spectroscopy Um, looking at biomolecules in dinosaurs and arguing that they had high metabolism from that. If we don't have access to the original things, we can't use it. New techniques happen all the time. And so to keep 
being able to do the science, we need the actual specimens. And our so I'm the president of the Society of Vertebrate Paleontology, and that's kind of um, part of our your mission remit. Um, we, you know, that's uh, a group of almost 2,000 vertebrate paleontologists, grad students, interested amateurs, and and museum collections people. And the thing is that um, our argument isn't that we want all the fossils to ourselves, but if a fossil's in a living room, it's not on display to you, right? Yeah. To the public, we can't learn anything new from it. It's benefiting exactly one person. Right? Absolutely. And so Alberta has some of the, the strictest legislation in the world, actually, regarding collecting fossils for sale. You can't do it. Yeah, like if you find a fossil, you must report it, correct? Yeah. Um, and the way the Alberta legislation works is if it's found to be scientifically significant, it needs to go to the museum. If it isn't, um, it can stay with you. You don't own it, though. You're holding it in trust for the people of Alberta. So if later on it turns out to be scientifically significant, it could end up being used. And you're you're basically allowed to keep it as a placeholder for everybody in Alberta. And that that legislation came to be because, if you look at the early 1900s, there was a lot of work going on in, in the Canadian dinosaur gold rush where Americans were coming up here and collecting our dinosaurs and taking them back to the States. If you go to the American Museum of Natural History in New York... Almost all the Lake Cretaceous dinosaurs on display came from here. Really? Yep. Huh. So, with is there, obviously you're talking about Alberta has some of the strongest legislation, so obviously it's not something that has any sort of international agreements, right? I mean, this is not something where everybody has recognized this. So is there, you know, is there poaching? Is there a black market in this? There is a huge black market. And, um, in fact, some people have gotten caught in that, so... Um, there are a number of countries that restrict the export of fossils from the country. You can't do it without permission from the government. Mongolia is one of those. And so a number of years ago now, Nicolas Cage bought a specimen of Tarbosaurus, which is a tyrannosaur, um, that was clearly from Mongolia and illegally exported, and the U.S. ended up, it ended up in court, and he ended up having to return the specimen to Mongolia. Huh. Um, there are the U.S. has very different legislation than other places. So, the U.S. has legislation that covers collecting fossils on federal land, yeah. and there is quite a lot of federal land in the United States. But if you find it on private land, fair game, it can be sold. Um, and the problem is that since the suitcase in the '80s um, and or early '90s, rather. I can totally explain that if um, that doesn't make sense, because not everybody's aware of what Rex. happened with Sue. Sue right? um, yeah, Sue the T-Rex at the Field Museum now. Okay. Sue was originally found in the United States, um, and the collector thought that it was on private land and had paid the landowner, who he thought was the landowner, for to, to be able to remove the skeleton. It turned out it wasn't actually on private land. It was on leased land, and it was actually leased tribal land. And that, is, that whole case ended up in the U.S. court system. And the courts eventually found in the favor of the landowner, and it was sold at auction to his benefit, or huh. the land leaseholder. In reality, a lot of us feel that case was probably not correctly decided, and the specimen should have gone to the Smithsonian. Yeah. Um, but in any case, the Field Museum managed to convince Disney and McDonald's to help cough up the money to buy Sue and put it on display and prepare it. <laughs> um, and that was an $8 million sale. 
Wow. And that kicked off a huge run on sale of dinosaurs. And the prices just keep skyrocketing. Yeah, like 12 I mean, million for the one last week. 12 million, 12.4 million. And that specimen didn't even have a real head. That specimen had a cast for the head. Um, but there aren't that many Deinonychus complete skeletons. Um, and the before that, Stan, uh, which is a T-Rex at the Black Hills Institute, was sold for 30-something million, 38 million, what? I think. Yeah, it was purchased. It turned. It was purchased anonymously, and we didn't know who had it. It turns out it was purchased for a new museum in Abu Dhabi. But you know, we don't. That museum hasn't been built yet. Right, we have yeah, no idea yeah. what kind of policies it's going to have and everything else. Um, so there was huge speculation about that one, and that one was a court-ordered sale because it was actually. It's a long saga, but uh, the Black Hills Institute that owned it was founded by a pair of brothers, and one brother decided he wanted out of the he business. He wanted out. Um, Jessica, unfortunately, I'm out of time. We could talk for hours, I'm sure. <laughs> we're going to have to do this again, though, but I appreciate getting started this way, and I promise we'll have you back on again and have more discussions about this. It's fascinating. It really is. I'm always happy to talk about it. Excellent. Thank you so much, Jessica. No problem. Take care. That's Dr. Jessica M. Theodore, who's a professor of biological sciences at the University of Calgary, telling us about this, I guess it's sort of a struggle between private collectors and scientists saying, you know, where, where should fossils end up? Should they be furniture or should they be something that the whole world can enjoy? First, I want to talk about what's going on in our tourist part of the province, which, of course, the Rocky Mountains is the biggest part of the tourism sector in Alberta, for sure. And the May long weekend marks the unofficial start of summer and the unofficial start of tourism season, I would think. Rocky Mountains, they're doing what they can to get ready, but they've got some issues. Staffing. There are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of available jobs in Banff and in Canmore and in Lake Louise right now. Hundreds, thousands of jobs vacant, and they need the staff. So to tell us what's going on, we're going to get into a conversation now with Wanda Bogdane, who is the Director of Communications and Stakeholder and Engagement at Banff and Lake Louise Hospitality Association. Wanda, thank you for your time today. I appreciate you joining us. Good morning, Shay. How are you? Excellent. Thanks so much. Um, give us an idea. Just what, what is the situation right now when it comes to staffing levels? I mean, really thousands and thousands of jobs left open? Yeah, it's a really complex situation. I mean, there's a number of variables going on between uh, some of our foreign workers who just did not return after the exodus of spring of 2020. Um, of course, there's some folks who are just choosing to not work more than one job. Um, others have moved into other sectors that they found of more interest or, or being closer to family, given some of the you know values-based decisions we had to make during the pandemic. So there's not just a, a one-off answer to what's going on. On. And we're also seeing, um, you know, a staffing shortage globally across mm. multiple sectors. It's not just unique to tourism. No, it's certainly not. We've talked about it with many different sectors all across the province and the country. You're absolutely right. Um, so what does it mean for business owners in Banff and in Canmore and places like that right now? What, what, what kind of action are they having to take to try and make it through? Yeah, you know, it's individual, business to business. But uh, generally speaking, we see some of the service um, availability being cut back. That could be days per week or hours per day, um, tables per venue, or, you know, even sometimes like the number of beds being available in a hotel. But um, the great thing is, is that they're retaining their service standards. It's just that that will be scaled back according to the number of staff that they have. Um, I know when I've gone to Banff, especially in the summer, um, 
the person uh, working at the bar or the restaurant is quite often not from Canada. There's a lot of Australians there. There's a lot of people that come just to work there. Um, so does that fit the temporary foreign workers or uh, having people come from other places to work in Banff? Is there some change there that's causing issues? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, obviously, you may have heard the recent um, announcements from the government of Canada with regards to temporary foreign workers. And some of those are, are great, but they won't assist us for the summer. The real challenge is that there are two different departments who are impacting what's happening with our immigration backlog. So Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship Canada, or IRCC, they process the work permits and permanent residence applications. That's where the big backlog is. There's currently more than 2 million applications waiting on decisions with unknown turnaround times. So that's actually where that piece of that complex scenario that I'd explained is really holding up our our local employers. But like you say, I mean, the help is coming, but not, not soon enough. I mean, you need this now. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. In terms of wages, um, what's the situation there? I imagine you know when you're in a position where you're having so much trouble getting people to come to work, that wages must be sky high as well, right? Yeah, those have been moving up for sure over a number of years, and uh, I'd say they're at an all-time high right now. And um, it depends again on the operation. You know, some of the smaller um, operators just maybe don't have as much leeway, but I've certainly seen a general increase across the board, no matter what type of role. The other thing that we see is the type of perks that are being offered. Um, you know, a lot of folks may not know, but there's uh, there's a lot of housing that gets tethered to positions in Banff and Lake Louise. So it's quite a desirable piece when you can find those employers who are giving you meal plans, they're giving you either very significantly discounted or provided staff accommodation. And then there's also other perks that you can look at around the lifestyle side because a lot of folks come to work in the mountains because of all of the different activities that you can do. Well, that's the thing. Like when I was growing up, I knew a couple of guys who went there and worked as short order cooks or servers or whatever, just because it was, it was a great place to spend your summer and, 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 and work a job. I mean, is, does that not happen? Do you not have kids from all over Alberta that get out of school and head to the mountains to work for the summer? We do. We have Albertan students. We've got, you know, students from the East as well coming, just not at the same volume. Yeah, okay. Um, in terms of the changes on that, a lot of students that, you know, that I know personally, at least, they actually do school through the summer. My niece, my nephew, they studied all year round. So a lot of those students aren't moving away like they used to just because some of the programs have changed. But I also think that uh, Canadians in general don't always have an interest in doing service-based positions at this point. They've, you know, through school or through, I guess, support and discussions with their parents or looking at other career paths. But the reality is, is careers exist in the tourism sector and they are plentiful. So what, um, you know, if you're, if you're going camping in Tunnel Mountain or you're going to stay at the Springs, wherever you may be spending some summertime in the Rockies, what can you expect as a tourist? Is it going to be dramatically different than, say, five years ago? Well, I mean, the most important thing you can do when you come to the mountains is to plan ahead. And I think that's always been the case just before, you know, there may not have been as many of, you know, of of the uh, array of experiences that are seeing constraints as we are now. So um, plan ahead, whether that's with Parks Canada and campgrounds, we know that there are um, restrictions or I guess limitations is a better word on the number of, let's say, campsites available, um, you know, 
obviously there's going to be a certain number of parking stalls available. So all for all of those different reasons, you want to plan ahead. Same thing goes with our local experiences. And um, connecting in with the Visitor Information Centre with Banff and Lake Louise Tourism is a really great one-stop shop. If they're looking to see, okay, how are things looking next weekend? Are there any experiences that are booked out or that have availability? Connecting in with um, with those types of resources will be really, really key for visitors. And even our, our regional visitors. Because our regional visitors, they know the lay of the land. They don't always think about having to connect in with tourism services. Yeah. But right now, it's a good time to do that because, you know, things have changed and we don't want anyone surprised. We want everyone to be able to have as much fun as they have always had there. Yeah. So pack your patience more than anything else in some cases. Yeah. And just, just being a little bit more prepared than what yeah. you're used to. Yeah. Um, and, and that's fine. You know, I, I have to do this all the time myself if I'm going even into, you know, one of the other parts of the park. And it's, it's just kind of the way that we roll right now. Yeah. Yeah. Times have certainly changed. Wanda, thanks so much for joining us this morning. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.